Hello again, and welcome to episode three of the CarvaCast podcast. This is a weekly podcast and initiative of the Carva Project. The goal of the podcast is to engage with Christian faculty in higher education and highlight their work to bridge connections between university, church, and society. My name is Penina Acharya-Laker, and I'm here with my most esteemed co-host, Joan Inazu. We're both faculty at Washington University in St. Louis and fellows with the Carver Project. Today, we are really excited and honored to spend some time with Kathleen Crouch. Kathleen, welcome to the CarvaCast. It's great to be here and to be with both of you. Catherine, it's great to have you. And Penina, that was such an excellent introduction. Is it good? We don't even need the music. That was so good. (laughs) Yeah, that was... That was amazing. Um, and welcome back from uh, a week of vacation, Yay. too. I hope, I hope you're ready to ask some hard questions today. <laughs> oh, my. I don't know. I think I'm still in vacation mode, so it's probably going to be really. <laughs> okay. I'm always in lawyer mode, so we're, we're safe. Um, well, Catherine, uh, it is so good to have you here. Uh, Catherine is a, a professor in the Department of Physics at Swarthmore College and um, focuses on both lab work, but also the teaching of physics and, and, the, and the kind of the science and pedagogy behind teaching that subject well. And there is so much that we can dive yeah. into about your work and your role in the university. Um, but before we do that, maybe it would, it would help our listeners, I think, if you just want to share with us a little bit about the specifics of your research and teaching and kind of how you got to be where you are. Sure. Um, so... I studied physics as an undergraduate at a four-year liberal arts college, Williams College in Massachusetts. And so when I graduated, I figured I wanted to just keep doing this. I wanted to become a professor who would have the opportunity to interact with students in the way that when you teach at a four-year all-undergraduate uh, institution you get to in small classes and in uh, one-on-one mentoring and small group um, interactions and so on. So uh, for my PhD in physics, I studied um, very small, very cold things, as my husband likes to say, uh, looking for basic quantum mechanics in things that are like very tiny uh, computer chips. But then as a postdoc, I had the opportunity to both continue working on studying nanoscale physics um, in materials and some really exciting and interesting things that emerge when you make things very, very small and unexpected and surprising properties of materials on very small scales. But I also had the chance to work on science pedagogy, as John mentioned, with um, the same postdoctoral advisor, Eric Mazur. And so when I came to Swarthmore College, initially my research was still related to um, exciting and um, unexpected properties of things when they get very small. But gradually over time, the work I've done related to physics education has gotten to be a bigger and bigger slice of the pie as it's gotten more and more um, attention and funding and so on. And so that's what I spend most of my time on now. And so what I work on related to physics education is both developing curriculum and evaluating its effectiveness for students. And the primary focus is curriculum teaching 
physics for students who are majoring in the life sciences or who are pre-medical designed to help them really make the connections between the physics that they're learning and the other science that they're either presently learning or will be learning in the future um, in graduate school or medical school. And that, that's so that's awesome. I am. Um, I was an undergraduate engineering major and I still think the the most devastating class of my entire undergraduate experience was second semester physics, electricity and magnetism. I did not know what I was doing and I did not know what it had to do with what I was trying to learn for engineering. And so what you're saying is there's a light at the end of the tunnel and you could, you could have helped me seen it. <laughs> it is a well-known phenomenon that students struggle with learning many, many things, but especially physics. We're trying to help. Wow. Yeah. So what are some of the, how do you, how do you do that practically? How, how what are the, what are the, some of the insights you've learned in these years of thinking about how to teach it better in more, in a more holistic way? In terms of teaching it better, some of the strategies that people have developed are realizing that it's really important for students to immediately put the ideas to work after they've learned them rather than just like reading them over and over again or listening to somebody say them or even watching somebody do examples. It's really important that after students encounter a new idea, they try to use it themselves. And so this leads to a technique that's been around for a really long time, which is sometimes called think pair share, where you interrupt class and say, okay, time for you to put this idea to work. Think about this question or this problem. And then after you've thought about it, turn to your neighbor and talk about it. Mm-hmm. Wow, I love that. I love that um, that you're encouraging your students to immediately think about the real world applications of the concepts they're learning in the classroom. Because I, I feel like, at least in my little um, experience with the sciences um, in primary school, through secondary school, and I grew up in Uganda, uh, I found that the classes that I... Uh, resonated with the most were the ones where I could see myself in the concepts and the ones that felt so abstract and so far from me, I just could not relate. So it's really uh, exciting to hear that as you're teaching and you're developing curriculum and pedagogy that you're really uh, thinking about that application. I'm curious though, if I, if I, if you wouldn't mind me just taking you back um, a few years back to before even like graduate school and college, what inspired this sort of maybe desire for you to pursue the sciences or physics in particular? Well, I think for me, ultimately, it was the combination of that. I loved the way science could help me understand the world around me. It made sense of it. It gave me the same kind of satisfaction that solving a puzzle or reading a mystery novel does, where it's like all of a sudden you figured something out and it's just super exciting to at least some of us, Um, not not everybody, of course. But the (laughs) other thing was that I had um, family members and teachers who really cared about me, who shared that love with me. So I still remember um, when I asked my father, who's a who's a physician, uh, was a chemistry major in college, I said to him, well, how does soap work? And, you know, that's the kind of question that all Mm -hmm. kids ask. I think I was five or six or something at the time. But when you then have the experience of like, oh, you know, some really diffident answer or, oh, stop bothering me. 
when you instead get the reaction of somebody who you love and who you care about very much gets all excited about answering your question and you get this undivided, attentive response. Um, so we like went to the kitchen sink and we got out some dish soap and he poured it into the water and we looked at it and then we dumped in, I don't remember anymore, but we probably like dumped in some cooking oil or something like that. And it was just this wonderful opportunity to engage with my curiosity with somebody who really cared about me. Wow. And I think that happened over and over in my growing up. I was just very fortunate in that way. And so I loved learning stuff. And then I was again fortunate in college to have faculty who really wanted to see me thrive, including uh, three Christian faculty in the department of nine that um, I was studied in. Wow. Wow. That's really great. So when you were in grad school, you talked about how uh, that's where you sort of um, fell in love with teaching or you figured out that this was what you wanted to do. Are there any specific experiences or moments uh, in that experience, whether it's in the classroom with your mentors or with students that kind of solidified that uh, as a path for you to take? Well, I think that my heading off to grad school was because I'd had all these great experiences growing up with learning science. I think I sort of thought of being a college professor as just like continuing to just be on the other side of the learning experience. Um, and so that was what motivated me kind of more of the same kind of thing I described earlier. I think once I got into graduate school and I really started thinking about what does it take to actually learn something new about the world doing research and then also, once I was a postdoc and starting to work on how students learn, delving into this question of how do we understand how people learn and how do we take into account the tremendous variety of people? You know, people, people are not all the same in the way that atoms are all this, you know, all the atoms of carbon are all exactly the same as each other. Um, but still, nonetheless, how do we generate new knowledge about how to teach well? Um, that added an extra dimension of excitement for me. You know, how can I take, uh, how can I use the insights that can kind of come along for the ride as you're teaching, but how can I systematize them and turn them into something that helps us actually um, learn from each other and and develop the process of teaching well more quickly than if we each have to figure it out by ourselves. That's fascinating because uh, you're, you're highlighting the relational dimension of science, which is, of course, philosophically embedded in the discipline and the practice, but not always self-evident on the, you know, the level of the student who's taking a physics class, that there's an inherent relational and human dimension to it. And it, of course, reflects too what our, our Christian commitments and understanding of mm -hmm. the world and what God has given us. Um, so it's just great to hear you integrate that so seamlessly. Mm -hmm. I wonder, you know, Catherine, you and I first met through the Veritas RIF program, which is a program for Christian faculty. And so we both were both, you know, known uh, as people who are Christians 
teaching in non-religious universities. And I wonder what your experience has been as a Christian faculty member and if there are, mm-hmm. if you've encountered any points of tension, uh, either in your work or your teaching or just your uh, life as a university professor. Mm. Yeah, that's a really great question. I mean, I think that, again, my experience in a small institution and a small student-focused institution, you know, has um, its distinctives compared to a bigger institution. So, so I think the advantage of being in a small institution, as well as sometimes the disadvantage, is that you know most people. So, um, so I know at least by name and by sight, if not well personally most of my colleagues and i get to know a lot of students and so i think i have the opportunity to be known for myself and for all the different things that i do and that i care about as opposed to being in a category um, mm-hmm. And I feel like that's what's needed at this time in history. I feel like, you know, I'm not the, I'm not a political scientist. (laughs) Um, I have many friends who are much more expert about this. Um, But it seems to me that in our current climate of polarization and, and also in the sort of shallowness that social media encourages, what we as Christians really need to be is to be, individuals and not be labels. And so I'm very grateful for the ways that Swarthmore as a small place enables me to be myself. Um, So for example, um, about three years ago by now, I took a group of Christian students to serve um, at the John and Vera Mae Perkins Foundation for Reconciliation and Development in Jackson, Mississippi over spring break. I had worked with John and Vera Mae and their children um, between college and graduate school, which was a very, very formative experience for me in understanding um, all of these issues um, our country is currently grappling with surrounding race and justice and understanding how that fits with Christian faith. And I took a group of um, six Swarthmore students along. And in the process of arranging that trip, you know, I ended up interacting with probably half a dozen faculty from around the campus in different capacities because some students wanted to see if they could get like, um, funding from the Lang Center for Social Responsibility that we have at Swarthmore. So I talked to the faculty member who runs that as following up from the student's application and so on. There were just a lot of interactions that were resulted from that. And it's one of the great experiences of being at a small place is that you can sort of build up this whole suite of ways in which you interact with people around different things. And so people know me now as the, the crazy physics professor who took students on a spring break service. <laughs> um, and then, you know, that's just one example. And so I feel like that's, that is um, something that I have tried to do throughout my time in academia is to be multidimensional and how I, display my Christian faith, how I talk about my Christian faith, and how I engage with my colleagues and students in general. Mm. 
that's really that's really um, great to hear, Catherine. I'm curious if you have either thought of or encountered other faculty um, that are sort of, you know, I think we're all sort of thinking about the fall semester and we recognize that we can't, you know, we can't continue on business as usual. I think that there's going to have to be spaces carved out to engage with our students um, in whatever capacity makes the most sense on just like, you know, the issues that we're facing in today's climate. And I guess I'm just curious if you have thought of or if you have ideas that you'd want to share for how you're thinking about approaching this um, in your lab, uh, in your classroom, but even just from a, in a science perspective, I guess I don't even know what that would look like. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me, you know, in the communication design field, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Perhaps that seems perhaps is like a, a more sort of as a smoother transition there because we already like you know deal with social issues and think about how communication and design and things like that play a role in perpetuating those issues. But I'm curious from a science perspective, how do you engage these conversations? Yeah, no, it's a it's a very complicated and um, but also very pressing question because a lot of students and a lot of faculty care about this tremendously right now. Um, so, so I think, uh, so a few things, <laughs> sorry, I'm going into teacher mode here. I've got my list. I love it. <laughs> um, so the first is that I'm going to both be engaging with my students within the context of teaching and with students within the context of my role as a relatively senior member of the physics department and with students um, in the Christian fellowship at Swarthmore and also more broadly, I see myself both as particularly a mentor for Christian students on campus, but also more generally an advocate for students who want their religious beliefs to be taken seriously and respected. So I've um, in the past um, advocated for Muslim students um, who were seeking opportunities to um, observe holidays that fell at inconvenient times of the semester and so on. Um, so, so kind of three different um, spaces in which I'm going to be dealing with this within my own teaching, within our department, and with um, students who either share my faith or share a conviction that religious faith is actually the defining way in which we should approach this. And I'm going to have to do it differently in all three of those spaces. And honestly, that is one of the most stressful things for me right now, because I feel like um, that it has to be dealt with differently in those three spaces and trying to figure out exactly what it looks like to discuss something in those three different ways (laughs) in parallel is a is a big mental challenge but at the same time it's um these are issues i care about tremendously things that i've already been working on over the last five years ways of bringing them up in my classes and so i feel like i have some things to build on 
And uh, this past year, um, I hosted a, a, a group of students from the Swarthmore Christian Fellowship in our home um, every other week talking about specifically um, the grounding in the Christian faith for dealing with issues of justice, um, particularly but not exclusively around um, race and poverty. And that got disrupted by COVID, um, but uh, that was something that was a really special thing for me to be able to do until we all got sent home. (laughs) So I feel like I have some building blocks. Catherine, I wonder if you could tell us a a bit about your own experiences as a woman in the sciences and maybe some general reflections you have about uh, maybe some of the challenges or opportunities for for women in in the physical sciences. No, absolutely. That is an important issue, and it's one that I've thought a lot about because when it becomes a normal part of your own experience that you walk into a room that has 25 to 50 people in it, and you're either the only woman there or one of maybe two or three, you have to think about these things, right? Um, So the first thing I should say is that my own experience, I was extremely fortunate and I benefited tremendously from the things that we now know are the best practices for helping women succeed in the physical sciences in fields like physics and engineering, Um, and so on, that are still really um, lacking in female participation, even though in some other sciences like chemistry and biology, participation has um, gotten to be comparable to the general population. Did you you experience that as a with respect to questions of authority or respect when you were a graduate student or particularly as a young teacher, did, did gender affect classroom dynamics or were you able to navigate those fairly well? Yeah. So that's, that's really interesting. So there are issues at every stage. And I think exactly like you say, um, as a teacher, as a, um, as a graduate student, um, there are issues of credibility and respect. It's well known, for example, that um, students expect female faculty to be nice but they also tend not to trust them as authoritative. And these two things fight against each other because if you're, if you're too authoritative, you're not nice. Right. right. <laughs> um, so um, I definitely encountered those kinds of issues. I think for me, what helps is that I'm nearly six feet tall and I can look my male students in the eye. And I think that actually really makes a difference. Um, I also think that as a student, um, also being a highly self-confident, tall, assertive young woman as I was, was also very helpful. And I've seen plenty of very smart, very capable, but more reserved, more shy um, young women just get um, talked over constantly by their male classmates. And one of the things that people have observed is really important is for teachers, whether at the middle school, high school, or college level, to be very aware of these things, to be watching for them. Because, for example, it's been noticed that, um, documented in research, that teachers tend to call on male students more, even when 
you ask them about their beliefs and they say, oh yeah, I think that girls are just as capable as boys, you know, for teachers in K-12. Unless they're very mindful of it, they tend to call on boys more. Um, So it's very important for teachers to be watching for these kinds of dynamics, to be very conscious of them, to be consciously supporting girls taking the opportunity to speak up in class, taking the opportunity to take leadership and to be given opportunities like research and um, so on. But I was very fortunate in that even 35 years ago, when I was a high school student and an undergraduate, I had teachers, both male and female, who really did that for me. I had Mm. female mentors who were scientists who took the time for me. That is really fascinating and um, I appreciate just sharing some tips for teachers. I think it's something that um, as an educator myself that I will want to check myself as well and just pay attention to those small cues. You know, who are you calling upon more and why? That's really, I hadn't really thought about that. Have you seen those um, sort of issues change at all with, you know, in, in the recent past with your students or do you find that they are still wrestling with the exact same issues or are there any nuances with that? The APS, the American Physical Society, which is the big professional association, recently launched a big push to increase the number of high school students who are female who are considering um, entering, uh, considering taking physics in college, majoring in physics, and entering physics-based professions. And there's some really exciting work going on there. And I think that perhaps part of why we got stuck for a while, although I'm not an expert in this, um, was that there was a thought maybe that where the change needed to happen was in in college. And what some wonderful research by some colleagues figured out was that even though girls were taking physics in high school, they weren't perceiving themselves as necessarily going on and doing more physics. And so the push has become work on those high school students, open the horizons of what they see as possible, and that hopefully that will lead to um, more women entering the profession. And the exciting thing is that it seems that these same kinds of approaches are also beneficial for diversifying the profession in terms of students coming from mm-hmm. racial and ethnic backgrounds that are traditionally underrepresented, and also for students in general who come from low socioeconomic backgrounds, may not have even really heard of physics before they get to taking it in school, may not have any sense of how it connects to a profession. Yeah, that's really that's really great. Any any thoughts on how um, STEM related education um, might be playing a role in the diversification of the field as well? Yeah. Um, again, as I said, that a lot of these things that we're figuring out about how to encourage the participation of women seem to also be helpful for um, students who come from any kind of background that doesn't historically send a lot of people to become physicists. I mean, physics historically um, and the physical sciences are a very white male field. So I think that uh, same kind of challenges, you know, provide supportive mentorship, provide advocacy. If you walk into a room and you don't see anybody who looks like you, um, it makes such a difference to have somebody 
who's in authority telling you directly, I think you've got the ability, the work ethic, the talent to do this. And I would really like to see you go on in this. So that's a key part of the equation. The other issue is that, um, and so, and it's so unfortunate that in this country, race is so often connected to um, socioeconomic disparities. And so, so many children from uh, racial and ethnic groups that aren't typically represented in physics are also growing up in poverty. There is such a need for those educational experiences available to those children to become richer so that they can imagine themselves as scientists. Mm -hmm. They can imagine themselves excited about doing science. I mean, all first and second graders love science, right? They all think the natural world is so cool, stars, space, you know, animals, you know, but then what happens between then and when they get to the point of studying it in high school or college, we need to find ways to help keep them excited about science, help keep them um, working on those things and give them the kind of rich educational experiences that will prepare them. One thing that's really exciting to me is uh, one of my friends, um, from when I, we lived in Cambridge, who was a friend from church and also a professional colleague, Jimmy Kim, he studies literacy. And one of the things he works on is incorporating fields other than traditional sort of English topics into literacy materials. And so I've had fun helping him add some science content into his fourth grade literacy materials. And I think things like that are really exciting. And I really hope that they'll help open up the space of possibility and opportunity for students who come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, and especially students who we need um, to equip to diversify the STEM fields. I, I really, I hadn't thought about, sorry, John, I hadn't really thought about this um, earlier, but as you were talking, I I was thinking about the flip side of the coin as well, where you have students from underrepresented and lower socioeconomic uh, backgrounds coming to um, the science field with a with a burden of um, of them really having no choice but to study sciences because it's believed that if you study the sciences, at the at the very least, you'll be able to have a decent job. And and I think this is also like just from my background growing up in Uganda, where it's very obvious that the sciences are valued more than right. the arts. So I, I, I could imagine a, a group of students already coming in uh, with that burden on their shoulders and maybe not even necessarily loving the sciences. And then on right. top of that, not able, not, not really seeing people that look like them and realizing how important to your point it is that, um, that the teachers and educators develop curricula that, uh, that create the space for the students to fall in love with the sciences and, and be able to see uh, to see the sciences beyond just that, like, I need to get a job, a yeah. good job in this field. And I hadn't yeah. really thought about that. So that's really great. You know, I was also struck, Catherine, as you were talking, uh, how many of the themes that you hit, whether it was your experience as a woman being, being, uh, around all men in the classroom and whether in, wh- whether you'd be noticed or not, or mm. the of finding mentors or the importance of being a mentor, the importance of empathy, that all of these are so core to who we are called to be as Christians, whether Christian educators mm-hmm. or people in the world that we are supposed to 
notice and imagine and empower the people we encounter and that there's a lot of work left to be done. So I just thought it was a really beautiful encapsulation yeah. story, but also where you you feel called to be today. Yeah, absolutely. In our last minutes here together, Catherine, I wonder if we could shift to a, a different topic that's been on my mind hearing you talk, and that's the topic of technology. And mm. I'm struck by the, mm. well, I mean, I think we all know how sort of under-theorized theologically and, mm. and for the church technology is. And you're someone who on the one hand works with some of the most sophisticated and most expensive technology in the world. And then on the other hand, I mean, I know some of your family practices are very careful about things like cell phones and too much screen time. Mm. And I'm so curious about how you balance both, uh, let, let me maybe think of it as the awe and the inspiration of technology and also the dangers of technology. And how do you hold those together in mm. the balance of your whole life? And what can you, quite frankly, what can you teach the rest of us? Because we all huh. know. Huh, that's great. Well, so I think that for me, there's there's just this enormous gulf between what it's like to use the kind of technology I use for physics research, which requires an enormous amount of skill to operate correctly and honestly always feels like it's on the verge of not working the way you want it to, because it requires so much skill because it's not plug and play. It's not consumer mass market technology. It's only designed to be used by people who really have been highly trained in how to use them. So it's like night and day between that kind of equipment that's in my research lab and a cell phone or a computer um, or a tablet. So I don't, I don't even think of them as the same thing, honestly. For me, the, um, the equipment in my research lab has a lot more in common with the Steinway grand piano in our living room that, that everyone in our family except me can play <laughs> or, you know, or the violin that is mine that is, has been sitting in the case gathering dust ever since our son got better than me and I didn't need me to help him practice anymore. Um, my research lab equipment has a lot more in common with those musical instruments than with my cell phone because it takes a lot of skill to use it well. And there's a steep learning curve. Um, I think for me, I am very sobered by watching what it's like for college students um, to try to figure out how to study and to compare that to what it was like for me when I was studying, when I was an undergraduate 30 mm -hmm. years ago now. The combination of the number of things that are vying for their attention to distract them and the fact that um, they're just inundated with information in a way that we weren't. I just think that it's, um, I think it is, it is not as good an environment in which to try to develop deep thinking and physics is, you know, like we physicists like to pretend that you don't ever have to memorize anything. It's all just about learning to think, <laughs> which is not quite true. 
but it's closer to true than than for most of the other sciences. And so what we're about is we're about cultivating ways of thinking. And I think the environment we're in makes that harder and harder. And so it was not hard for me to try to hold that out of my family's life. Although neither of my children decided to go on and be scientists, but, <laughs> but they're doing great thinking about things otherwise. Yeah, you know, it's, it's great because as you said that, it made me real, you can Google how to turn on an iPhone. You can't Google, right, <laughs> some of those deeper <laughs> questions that you're trying to figure out. Um, yeah, well, thank you. I feel like we've uh, just scratched the surface here, but I it's know. been so great, so great to have you um, with us. And I know that people will be encouraged by hearing from you. So thanks for taking the time to be with us, Catherine. Oh, it's been really great to have this conversation um, and uh, so encouraging to get to meet you, Panina, and to oh. talk again with you, John. Oh, you, right, you right. too. And thanks for making physics accessible to us. Just know oh. we talked about it. <laughs> no, <laughs> I know. I know. may have happened. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. -bye. Okay, bye.